All right, we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 40. And this is continuing the list of the Old Testament faithful that we looked at in our last session. It's part of that exhortation that really is follow the example of the Old Testament faithful. And the author of Hebrews had been considering the example of Abraham and Sarah and paused that in chapter 11, 13 through 16 to emphasize the significance of the fact that Abraham, Sarah, and even the other patriarchs all died never seeing the promises come to full fruition. So he's listing off these examples in the order of Uh, that they show up in the Hebrew scriptures, chronological order. So now what he does, after breaking off there in verses 13 through 16, here in verse 17, he resumes uh, the list by considering Abraham and the other patriarchs. And so he says in verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And the one who had received the promises was offering up his only son, It was he to whom it was said, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And so we broke off the story of Abraham and Sarah with the promise of Isaac. Then we had verses 13 through 16, where we emphasize that all of these died um, in without ever seeing the promises come to full fruition. So now he picks up again, having fast forwarded the story of Abraham up to the point where Isaac now is a teenager. He and Isaac are um, on their way up to Mount Moriah and God has actually, uh, by way of testing Abraham, called him to offer up Isaac. It is a really difficult and bit of a troubling and hard story in the book of Genesis. You can read it in Genesis chapter 22. The main point being made here in Hebrews chapter 11 is that Abraham has received the initial fulfillment of the promise. Isaac, a son born by Sarah. It's not a nation yet. It's not the stars of the heavens or the sands of the seashore yet. Uh, So Abraham knows that there's a whole lot more of the promise to come, and it's supposed to come through Isaac. He knows all of that. Um, And yet, God said, offer him up. And Abraham trusted God. And he trusted God to fulfill his promise, even with such an instruction. And so look at verse 19. He, that is Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him, that him there in the second half of the verse is Isaac, from which he also received Isaac back as a type. So what enabled Abraham to obey? His faith, specifically his faith that somehow God can raise people out of death. This actually appears to be implied in the Genesis account When Abraham tells his servants, you wait here, he says to his servants, and the boy and I will both return. And so he seems to have this idea that somehow God is going to uh, spare Isaac's life or going to enable Isaac to be raised from the dead or something. So it's implied in the Genesis account, and the author of Hebrews calls that a type. And normally when you see the word type, it's the Greek word tupos or typos, But that's not the word we have here. It's actually the word parabole, from which we get our word parable. The idea is that that Isaac is sort of like an object lesson or uh, a a message in the form of a story. The story of 
Abraham offering up Isaac teaches a lesson, a parable. Um, And the parable or the lesson is that God can somehow even fulfill his promises in the face of death. And the author of Hebrews uh, and us and the original readers, we all know full well that there actually was one through whom this was completely and totally true, Jesus. And so we know that death is not the end of God's promises. And Abraham had sort of a a basic faith in that, even in his time and his place. Well, the author continues with uh, more examples now from the patriarchs. So we go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Those are the three patriarchs. And so we go in that order here. And the author of Hebrews says just enough to jog your memory of the Old Testament stories. So verse 20, by faith, Isaac, blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. This derives from Genesis chapter 26 through 28, the specific chapter where you find the blessing ideas in Genesis chapter 27. And the line of promise went from Abraham through Isaac, and and then it's going to continue on through one of Isaac's descendants. And that descendant is going to be Jacob. And, And so, Uh, Isaac had received God's reaffirmation of the promised blessings after Abraham had died. And so Isaac himself now is determined to transmit this promise and those blessings on to the following generation. And he does that by blessing Jacob and then um, blessing Esau, sort of, in the story. And the blessings pertain to what was to come into the future, what God was going to do through the family line. The story continues in Hebrews 11, verse 21, and by faith, Jacob. And so the the line of promise goes through Isaac uh, to Jacob. And by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. This comes from Genesis chapter 48 and how Jacob showed a similar faith to his father, Isaac, uh, on his deathbed, he blessed the two sons of Joseph, deliberately actually giving the greater blessing to the younger son, which is reverse order of the way it's supposed to be. But this is the way it worked in his case, and it's the way it's going to continue to work as God chooses the lesser to be the, the line of the promise. The interesting note here is the where it says, leaning on the top of his staff. If you read in your Old Testament, it likely will say um, something about leaning on the bed or the bedpost. And the reason for that is because um, this is a really minor variation in Hebrew. Originally, the Hebrew language consisted only of consonants with no markings for vowels. Uh, Vowel markings came in to use about 600 years to 800 years after the time of Jesus with the Masoretic scribes adding those so they could remember how to pronounce the words. Well, both the word staff and the word uh, that's translated in the Hebrew Old Testament bed have the exact same consonants, M-T-H. And the Masoretic scribes, when they added vowels to this particular verse in Genesis 47, they added the vowels I and A, mitah, while the Septuagint translators, who translated it before Christ, they read it as staff, mateh, exact same consonants, just different pronunciation. And our author here in Hebrews follows the Septuagint. And so you get staff from the Septuagint. You get bed from the Masoretic text that's translated in the Old Testament. Either reading makes perfect sense. 
Um, either he was leaning on his bed or he was leaning on a staff, likely his staff, as noted here. And so um, he blessed his sons leaning on his staff. Verse 21 mentioned Joseph and his son. So verse 22 picks up there and says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. This is from Genesis chapter 50, specifically Genesis 50, verse 25. There's Joseph in Egypt. The children of Israel have all moved down to Egypt under his care and and watch. And now he is aged and he's dying. And he actually, uh, by faith, implicitly mentions the exodus, the leaving of Egypt when he gave orders concerning his bones. What were those orders? Well, uh, verse 22 continues saying, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will assuredly take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. He knew the promise. He knew they were to, to possess the land that was promised to Abraham, and they still didn't. And now the whole family was living there in Egypt. And so by faith, he believed at some point God would deliver them from Egypt and give them the land that he had promised to Abraham. And so even though he was a high-ranking official in Egypt, he looked ahead to the Exodus when he could be buried in the land of promise and wanted them to carry his bones ahead to there. Then in verses 23 through 29, the author of Hebrews moves ahead, jumps ahead in the story to Moses and the Exodus, since he mentioned uh, the Exodus in just the preceding verse. And so verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Notice that Moses has made the subject of this by faith Moses, but then it's passive was hidden and he was hidden by his parents. And so it's actually his parents, Amram, Amram and Jochebed in the story. It's actually their faith that's highlighted because they hid him. But Moses has made the subject of the sentence here because he's obviously the central character in the Exodus story. Um, in Exodus, only the mother uh, Jochebed is mentioned as the one that uh, took responsibility for hiding Moses, but both his parents were surely in on it. In fact, the Septuagint uses a plural noun to indicate both had a part. And notice Moses is described here as beautiful. Um, and it doesn't just deal with physical appearance. The word beautiful here is a general word of approval beyond just physical beauty. In fact, Acts chapter 7 verse 20 describes Moses uh, this way as beautiful before God. That is well-pleasing, special, having a special purpose. And so Moses' parents hid him because Moses was beautiful, probably in the same sense of Acts chapter 7 there, beautiful before God. They weren't afraid of the king's edict, and so they hid Moses. The story of Moses' life then continues in verse 24, as he says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin. This is a clear reference uh, to what happens in Exodus chapter 2. In fact, let me just read you Exodus chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, and you can hear the language 
there from Exodus that is echoed here in Hebrews chapter 11. Exodus 2, 10 through 12 says, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his fellow Hebrews and looked at their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his fellow Hebrews. So he looked this way, and that when he saw that there was no one around, he struck and killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. So you can hear some of the very same words and phrases from Exodus that are used here in Hebrews chapter 11. And so Moses's faith was seen in his refusal to remain a wealthy, influential Egyptian and live in the palace. Instead, he chose to be identified with and suffer ill treatment with his fellow Hebrews. The author actually describes the wealth and the status and the power that Moses had in Egypt as the temporary pleasures of sin. They were temporary. They were passing or fleeting. They wouldn't last. They provided pleasure that was short-term but not lasting. And they were associated with sin uh, because you have like the sin of Pharaoh oppressing Israel and others. You have the sin in that takes place in a pagan palace. You have the idolatry of Egypt. Maybe even if Moses had chosen all of that, guess what? He too would be guilty of sin. So the temporary pleasures of sin. Moses chose his people and God's purposes over the wealth and the pleasure of the royal palace. The next thing that happens in, the, in Exodus, in the story in Exodus, is Moses then uh, leaves Egypt and is now living in uh, as a shepherd in Midian. And so goes from somebody with power and wealth and prestige in the Egyptian palace to living as a nomadic shepherd in the land of Midian. Why did he give up all of this wealth and all this status? Well, look at verse 26. He did this because he was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so he had his eyes set in the future. He had his eyes on what God had promised. And the author of Hebrews refers to it as he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. Why the reproaches of Christ? I mean, Moses lived 1,500 years before Christ. Well, probably because the entire biblical story is messianic in that it looks forward to God's promise that was eventually fulfilled in the Messiah Jesus. So to identify with the people of promise and to endure hardship and shame as a result of identifying with them is ultimately to endure reproach for the sake of the Messiah, for the sake of the messianic promise and the messianic people. And thus, that's what Moses did. And the author of Hebrews probably chose this language, reproaches of Christ, because it's the very same kind of reproach that's causing the original readers of this book to consider abandoning the Messiah. Like, it's getting hard to follow the Messiah. Let's just go back to what we're comfortable with. But Moses didn't do that, and they should be like Moses. They should consider um, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt or the treasures of Rome or whatever else it is. And why did Moses do that? Well, because he was setting his gaze on the reward that God had promised to the faithful. He was looking ahead. Look at verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he persevered, he endured, 
as though seeing him who is unseen. Notice that phrase, seeing him who is unseen, which ties back into verse 1, that faith demonstrates the reality of unseen things. And Moses, by faith, was looking ahead to those things. He endured with his gaze set on those things. And so Moses' perseverance is a demonstration of things that had not yet come to fulfillment or to reality, but he trusted God about those things. Not only that, but think about the Passover and the Red Sea and all of that that's involved in the story of the Exodus. Look at verse 28. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. And so, Now we're talking specifically about the exodus and the fleeing from Egypt and the original Passover. And that original Passover was when the death angel passed over the houses of the Israelites who trusted God's instructions through Moses. And they trusted it enough to put blood on their doorposts so that their firstborns would be spared. And uh, when, when being chased by Pharaoh's army and now they're up against the sea and Moses extended his staff and the sea parted and all the people were through and then... Moses brought his staff back down and the sea crashed onto the Egyptians and they were all drowned. All of this is a demonstration of their faith, their willingness to trust God's instruction and his leadership. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after the Israelites had marched around them for seven days. And so when it finally came time to enter the promised land, they faced a walled, fortified fort town called Jericho. And the strategy they were given for taking this fort city, well, march around it and then blow your trumpets and shout. And well, they trusted God enough to do that. And guess what happened? The walls fell down. And while we're talking about Jericho, look at verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. This comes from the the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 6. And you can go back and read the story there. And Rahab is just a fascinating and surprising example. For for one, she's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And they're entering into Canaanite land. Um, and she is one. Not only that, she runs uh, a, a tavern and a hostel and probably a brothel as well. And yet here she is. Her name also appears in James chapter 2, verse 25, as an example of faith. And what's her faith? Well, her faith is she believed the spies, she confessed faith in, the, the, in Yahweh, the God of the spies, and she followed their instructions. Um, Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Rahab said, The Lord your God is the God of heaven above and on earth below. She risked everything for the Israelites because she believed in their God. She did what the spies told her. She hung a red cord out of her window. And the result? Well, she didn't perish after she welcomed those spies in peace. The author of Hebrews could go on and on and on, but he chooses to break off the detailed list at this point with Rahab and then just mention others quickly for rhetorical impact. And so look at verse 32. What more shall I say? 
For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. So he lists off just some of the well-known stories from the Old Testament. Surprising stories because we know some of these stories and these people weren't like models of morality or perfect in their faith, but they persisted to the end in faithfulness. And that's what the author of Hebrews is camping on. And then he lists off some of the well-known things they did by virtue of their faith. And so verse 33 and 34, he says, Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, or maybe better, administered justice. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. Think, for example, of Daniel in the lion's den. They quenched the power of fire, perhaps like uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, or maybe Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong. They became mighty in war. Now they put foreign armies to flight. And so this is all just kind of a shotgun approach for rhetorical effect to emphasize to the original Jewish readers who love these stories, love these scriptures, to inspire them to say, look, They hung in there and they were faithful even when it was difficult. Please keep doing the same thing. The author of Hebrews continues in verse 35 and says, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Think of Elisha raising the widow's son. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Uh, That is better than those of verse 35 who Uh, were received back by resurrection, but they would have to die again. The better resurrection that's being spoken of here is uh, eternal resurrection. Uh, And others experienced mocking and flogging. To be flogged is to be whipped. Further uh, chains and imprisonment. Uh, They were stoned. Uh, That is, uh, pummeled with big rocks until they were killed. They were sawn in two. Tradition says this was Isaiah the prophet's faith fate, being sawn in two. They were tempted. Uh, They were put to death with the sword. And then the author of Hebrews ends with a general, just sort of general hardships. They went about in sheepskin, in goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. I love this next line, people of whom the world was not worthy. That their faith and their faithfulness, even... uh, that was attended with so much difficulty, and they hung in there till the end. The world was not worthy of them. Wandering in deserts, on mountains, and sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. Like just a, a, a general list of hardships, difficulty that they endured to be faithful to God and to fulfill their calling by God to serve him in whatever way it was. And then in verses 39 and 40, the author comes back around to where he started, bookending this list with the key idea. Look at verse 39. He says, and all these, all these people that he's mentioned by name, that he's been very specific about, that he's alluded to, all of these having gained approval through their faith. Remember, in the last session, we emphasized that this is central. It's not just that they had faith, it's that they gained approval. That is, they gained a testimony. They were commended through their faith. All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
they they didn't experience the full fruition of God's promise. They saw glimpses. They got bits and pieces, but they never saw the Messiah. They never experienced the culmination of God's promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We've received that. The original audience of Hebrews had received that, but these in this list in Hebrews 11, they did not receive that. They all died before that because, verse 40, God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And so uh, they didn't receive the full fulfillment because uh, that was going to come in our day. And when the author of Hebrews writes that, I mean, he means his day and the original reader's day. And down to today, we know the fulfillment. We know who the Messiah is. The Jewish Christians that the author of Hebrews was originally writing to, they were considering reverting. Um, and he tells them, why go back? Like, you're going back to the, the time period of promise when you've experienced the fulfillment. And the people of the promise, they weren't even perfected until now. And you've experienced what they longed for and looked for. And now you want to go backwards in time? Why would you do that? Why would you give up? What they longed for and what they looked for, why would you give that up just for the sake of ease and comfort? And with that, he wraps up this um, powerful exhortation to imitate the faithfulness of these Old Testament faithful saints. And before we leave this section, let me just offer a couple reflections. The first is this. Faith acts. Faith acts. It does things, right? I told you when we first started this section to pay attention to the phrase by faith and then what they did. And by faith, they, uh, by faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah built. By faith, Abraham left. By faith, Sarah conceived. By faith, Abraham offered. By faith, Isaac blessed. By faith, Moses chose God's people. Like faith acts. And we need to remember that, that that faith is not static or passive. It's not merely believing in a doctrinal uh, list, a doctrinal code, right? It's not so much a set of beliefs as a set of beliefs that move you to action. And the reality is um, we actually live what we really believe. That's just the way life is. That's why you can look at someone's life in total not in bits and pieces. We all are not perfectly consistent. The list of people in this chapter weren't perfectly consistent. But when you look at someone's life in total, you can see what they actually believe because faith, by its very nature, leads to action. Faith acts. The second reflection is uh, faithful faith. These all died, he says, in faith. Um, he mentions that several times in this chapter. These all died in faith, and yet they pressed on. Um, they were faithful to the end. We know these stories. We know these people aren't perfect, but they were faithful to the end. And that's really the call of this chapter for the original readers and for us, is that we persist in faithful faith. We keep trusting God um, through the, the difficulties, the ups and downs, the twists and turns. We keep trusting God all the way to the end, because we don't just have faith, we are faithful. All right, thanks for tuning into this recording on the Listener's Commentary. 
The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching effort uh, made possible by the generosity of people just like you and me. And so thanks a ton for those of you who prayerfully support this ministry. And if you want to join the team of supporters, um, you can do so. There's a link down in the notes below that'll take you to listenerscommentary.com slash give, or you can just swing over there to listenerscommentary.com, click the give button, and you can set up a monthly recurring donation, or you can give a one-time gift as well. All recurring donors have access to the study hub as well. So thanks a ton for your support.